If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the Deputy Editor of the magazine. And I'm Charlotte Hodgman, the Section Editor. This is our May 2011 podcast. Coming up this month, we have... The Leeds Regional Office reported that the defeatism was greatest in Harrogate and Bridlington. That was Paul Addison on a survey of British morale during the Second World War. Prior to Shakespeare, there was a very vibrant, um, dramatic culture in, in England. That was Tara Hamling on Elizabethan drama. Our last recorded identification of the Ninth in Britain, in fact anywhere in the Roman world, comes from York. And that was Miles Russell on the mystery of Britain's lost Roman legion. monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. First up this month is a joint interview with Paul Addison and Jeremy Krang of the University of Edinburgh. Paul and Jeremy have been conducting a survey of British morale during 1940, when the country faced up to the fall of France, the Battle of Britain and the Blitz. I caught up with them recently to find out more about this fascinating research. The first voice you'll hear after myself will be Paul Addison. How do we know so much about British morale in 1940? Well, it's wonderful that we do have this information because it was the very first time that the British government had really tried to monitor popular opinion. If you go back to earlier times, of course, they'd always, through their intelligence services, tried to keep tabs on subversive elements in society. But what they were interested in in 1940 was whether the great majority of the population were prepared to continue the war. It was a very dangerous situation with France collapsing and the authorities were worried that the British people might be prepared to throw in the towel. So they were prepared to experiment in monitoring popular opinion which they did through the Home Intelligence Department of the Ministry of Information. And that was the agency that collected all these reports about popular opinion, which were produced daily from the 18th of May 1940. And what kind of methods were they using to get a picture of this morale at the time? Well, the morale reports were produced each day of the week, except Sundays, from the 18th of May to the 27th of September 1940, and they were compiled from a range of sources. This included data provided by external organisations, such as uh, Mass Observation and the Wartime Social Survey. Home Intelligence could also draw on the Ministry of Information's own regional information officers across the country. It also had access to... BBC listener surveys, police reports, reports of the postal census. And in London, in the London area, a network of contacts was established from among such people as doctors, dentists, news agents, publicans, trade unionists and others, who would report on the views expressed by people who they came across during their daily business. Was there an element of spying on the home front going on? Well, there was certainly an element of eavesdropping on the home front going on. Indeed, what I, I think, find possibly most surprising is that one could perhaps have visited one's GP in the summer of 1940, and it was possible that uh, my views on the uh, progress of the war might have been reported on to home intelligence. Was that kind of methodology controversial at the time? 
Well, of course, the British people didn't really know what was going on. There were suspicions that eavesdropping of some sort was going on. In fact, Duff Cooper, the Minister of Information, was forced to deal with these allegations in the House of Commons. But that actually quickly blew over and Home Intelligence was able to continue to monitor public opinion in the shadows to some extent. Yes, the word of this did get out. It's interesting that the press at the time were very hostile to this method of finding out about popular opinion. The Observer said, for example, the idea of sounding opinion by doorstep inquiries can hardly have been produced by a British mind. Nothing could be more unpopular or more futile. And other newspapers likened it to some kind of Gestapo approach to popular opinion. But of course, it was nothing like the Gestapo because the Ministry of Information weren't interested in identifying disloyal individuals or people who were causing the government trouble. They were interested in finding out why popular opinion might be critical or demoralised and what they could do about it. They weren't interested in weeding out disloyal elements in society. Do you think they were effective? Do you think they did actually get an accurate picture of what morale was like at this point? It's very hard to say. Their methods were very amateurish. The study of public opinion was all in a very experimental stage at this time. And they clearly did rely a lot on their regional information officers. And we know that their regional information officers used to report every day to the ministry on the basis of casual conversations they'd overheard or even nipping into the pub at lunchtime and having a word with the bartender and finding out what was being said in the pub. So a lot of it was impressionistic. But it's very interesting that if you read it day by day, it does add up to a convincing story of popular morale in 1940. There is a narrative running through it. You start off with popular opinion really very panicky and wild rumours circulating, and then you end up in the Blitz and the discovery that, after all, popular opinion was pretty robust. That's something I was going to come on to, is that we have this impression nowadays that the people of London and Britain in general had this really strong spirit during the Blitz, and... Does your research actually back that up? Was that the case? Yes, I I think so. I mean, although there were, as as Paul has suggested, pockets of defeatism around the country and instances of grumbling and selfishness, the morale of the British people does seem to have remained remarkably strong and they were very confident of eventual victory. Indeed, in in the report from London on the 14th of August, it was recorded that, and and I quote... Strong opinions heard on all sides that propaganda exhorting us to be courageous is not only unnecessary, but impertinent. Why do you think the people of Britain had this very strong view of the situation? After all, the war hadn't really been going that well up to that point. Well, this was the second time the British had fought the Germans. The First World War was fresh in everyone's mind. And although it had been won at huge cost, I think all British people knew that it had been won. And the Home Intelligence reports do report comments like, we always lose the first battle, but we always win the war. There was also, of course, a deeper confidence in those days that the British never were defeated. The whole of uh, British history, I think, was taught in school as a series of victories over one continental country after another. Churchill, of course, himself called on the analogy of the Armada or the failed invasion of Bonaparte at the beginning of the 19th century. So there was a sort of instinctive British confidence that Britain could not lose. Did the victory in the Battle of Britain, did that really provide a boost to morale on the home front? Yes, it did. The RAF fighter pilots had actually been, I think, rather unjustly vilified for their apparent absence over the Dunkirk beachhead. But now, in the uh, summer of 1940, they were the heroes of the hour. And as they appeared to gain the upper hand in the aerial battles, fought out, of course, in full view of the civilians below, home intelligence picked up a growing sense of euphoria. The regional office in Tunbridge, Wales, on the 17th of August, commented, the fact that this region bore the brunt of yesterday's air attacks has heightened rather than lowered morale, and people are exhilarated by the feeling that they are now in the front line. Coming on to something else that you just said about Dunkirk situation, did the return of soldiers from Dunkirk, did they spread a defeatist message or were they actually quite positive when they got back to the country? It wasn't a defeatist message that they spread, though some of them were, I think, in a pretty bad condition after the evacuation from Dunkirk, but it was a message of anger. They were angry, mistakenly, I think, because they thought the RAF had failed them and that had left them open to being strafed on the beaches by the Luftwaffe. 
In fact, the fighter command was very fully deployed and bomber command during Dunkirk in trying to counter the German attack. But there was that uh, mood of anger against the RAF. But as Jeremy says, that gradually dissipated over the summer, particularly because later on, as the Battle of Britain developed, people could actually see it being fought. If you were in the southeast of England, you could see far up in the sky the fighter command actually shooting down the Germans. And, of course, the south of England was littered with the remains of German aircraft which had been shot down, and nothing was better for morale than that. So was morale consistent around the country, according to the reports, or did it vary from one region to another? Well, this is a curious thing about the morale reports. They often pinpoint particular places in a way that is a little bit puzzling. For example, the Leeds Regional Office reported that the defeatism was greatest in Harrogate and Bridlington. Now, I don't suppose people in Harrogate or Bridlington would have agreed with that. And you get reports saying, Wiltshire nervous but not panicky, or this was a quote we came across quite early on, Horsham continues smug. (laughs) So the reports actually do pick up a great deal of apparent regional variation, but it's very difficult to know whether this was real or that it was just uh, tittle-tattle on the part of the local regional information officers. From the reports you've seen, what kind of view did the public have of those in authority during the war? Well, I think there was a certain amount of frustration with those in authority. I'll give you two examples. There was a good deal of anxiety in the reports about air raid siren policy. And this is very important, of course, to peoples, what they should do when the German bombers came. And what we find is that sometimes there were bombs and no sirens, and sometimes there were sirens and no bombs. So that's one example. Another is the campaign that was launched by the Ministry of Aircraft Production, calling on people to donate their aluminium pots and pans for the war effort. So many people dutifully did this, but at the same time, they saw that aluminium goods were still freely available in the shops. So they were rather perplexed about all this. Alongside all this, we see a more or less constant popular pressure for a more vigorous prosecution of the war at home and abroad. Now, this revolves partly around mobilising the home front more effectively, but also taking the war to the enemy more effectively on on the battlefields. Churchill, after the war, said that the nation had the lion's heart, but he had just had the good luck to give the roar. And I think the morale reports do bear this out to a large extent. When the people were angry, were they angry mainly at the Germans? Were they angry at their own government, at fellow civilians? Who were they directing that against? Well, they clearly were very angry with the pre-war politicians they blamed for this disastrous situation. Above all, with Neville Chamberlain. Neville Chamberlain had resigned as Prime Minister in May 1940, but he remained in the government, and so did some of the other pre-war politicians associated with the Munich Agreement and the appeasement of Germany. And three journalists put together a book called Guilty Men, attacking the pre-war politicians for failing to rearm Britain and for appeasing Hitler. And this book was a runaway success in the summer of 1940, and the Home Intelligence reports emphasise over and over again from all parts of the country the popular feeling that it was time that the men of Munich, as they were called, were removed from office. There was indeed a fear in some quarters that they might try to make peace with Nazi Germany. Well, that's interesting. So people were very much against the idea of a negotiated peace. Home intelligence report that there were pockets, particularly among the very poor people, but only a very small minority who thought that life would be no different under Hitler from what it was already. But uh, the overwhelming tenor of the reports is of a desire to push the politicians into more drastic action, into more drastic mobilisation of the economy and manpower, and indeed into bombing Germany. That becomes quite a popular theme. I should also add that once the blitz began, there certainly, I think, was some evidence of anger, understandably, anger at the Germans. The report for the 13th of September states, the majority carrying on with calmness and courage, even in heavily bombed areas. 
most prevalent emotion, anger with Germans and irritation over constant raids. Real hatred and savagery flash out at times from those who have come in contact with actual tragedies. We must wipe them off the face of the earth, is one working man's comment heard today. So clearly there was anger there for those who had been directly affected by the bombing. May I just add one report from the 25th of June 1940? Growing irritation at super-politeness of BBC in referring to our enemies. Quote, is this sissy attitude due to the existence of an appeasement policy? Unquote. So people were turning against the BBC because they felt they weren't being strident enough in what they said about the Germans? They also seem to have disliked BBC announcers with very plummy accents too, actually. Obviously people paid enormously close attention to the radio at that time. I should also add, if I may, because we are speaking from Scotland, that on the 13th of June 1940, this comment was made in the Home Intelligence Report. Strong criticism of unnecessary dismalness of five-minute religious feature just before 8am news. The lugubriousness of the Scottish gentleman too often resembles preparation for the worst. So people's gripes, not even just on the war footing, but just general gripes are being picked up as well. Yes, it gives you a picture of a supreme crisis in which all sorts of petty details of ordinary life and all sorts of petty grumbles are continuing. There's an awful lot, for example, of grumbling about the introduction of the tea ration. I think it was July 1940, which was set at two ounces a week. And a lot of people who'd been consuming much greater quantities of tea than that were very put out by this. No, there are all sorts of gripes. And there are gripes about motorists who are refusing to give a lift home to people when the bus service is disrupted, that, that sort of thing. And the reports provide a wealth of detail about the daily problems of life on the home front during this period. They also give us an insight into the public's hopes and fears about the progress of the war, but they also offer us some wonderful vignettes. We hear, for example, about the housewives of Cannock chasing their conscientious objector milkman down the street. We hear about the success of the communal pig bucket in Mayfair. We also learn about the evangelical old ladies in Tunbridge Wells who are reported to be delighted with the bombing of Catholic Italy. So there's plenty of colour in, in these reports. Did the government actually take notice of what people were saying? Was policy in any way directed by the reports, what they'd found out? I think the most important effect of the reports was during the Blitz on London because the first days of the Blitz certainly had a shattering effect on almost everybody and that really did raise the question of whether morale would hold up. And home intelligence, I think, were quite important in steadying the nerves of the politicians at that point by reporting that after the initial shock, morale soon recovered and the people were determined to get back to normal. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with indeed use indeed for scheduling screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster and listeners of this show will get a 75 dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com history extra just go to indeed.com history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast terms and conditions apply need to hire you need indeed we don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. And that was Paul Addison and Jeremy Krang. Their book, Listening to Britain, is published by The Bodley Head. Plus, you can read more about their findings in our May issue.
Many people assume that Elizabethan drama began with the permanent playhouses that sprang up in London in the mid to late 16th century. However, as Tara Hamling explains, Britain had a rich culture of performance and theatre before the emergence of dedicated playhouses. I spoke to Tara about the spaces used for performance during the period and what the experience of Elizabethan drama would have really been like. Most of us are familiar with the works of William Shakespeare and his contemporaries, but could you tell us something about the type of drama being performed in the Elizabethan period before Shakespeare was on the scene? Sure. Well, Shakespeare's born um, in 64, in 1564. Um, So, you know, the Elizabethan period started just before that. And obviously he's not performing until he he gets into his sort of late teens, early 20s. And we're not sure exactly when he did start performing. So prior to Shakespeare, there was a very vibrant, um, dramatic culture in in England. Um, There were many forms of public entertainment and spectacle that ordinary people would have access to. um, and, And that you know, took place in civic contexts, in church contexts, um, and, and would be tied in with kind of the, the calendar, the, the church calendar and, and, and festivals throughout the year. And what sort of drama would this have been? So you, you mentioned uh, church performances. Um, what, what sort of things would have been performed? Well, I think the thing to think about is that there's lots of forms of public entertainment that might include the performance of plays. Um, So there would be uh, small groups of travelling players going around and performing, but that might be sort of mixed up with jesters and jugglers and musicians and all kinds of other entertainment and and, and major kind of civic um, spectacle and church spectacle, as I say, at different points in the year. So plays might be performed in these different contexts. And obviously, in a a church context, in a liturgical context, you're thinking about performance of mystery plays or morality plays, um, which perform um, scenes from the Bible or um, scenes from the lives of um, saints, particular saints. Um, But then the more sort of jovial um, uh, performances that take place in, in parishes um, might include Morris dancers and, and uh, sort of rowdy plays being performed alongside those. So, so very different kinds of um, sort of performance and, and entertainment taking place in different contexts. And what would the experience of these types of plays have been like for the public coming to watch them? Again, I think that depends on, on context and also how these things were performed. So, for example, with mystery plays, um, I'm sure there was an element of, you know, um, these being very serious, sombre occasions with performance of things like uh, Christ's passion, um, uh, even Christ being um, crucified. So, presumably, these were very moving spiritual occasions. But at the same time, because these, um, in places like York, um, Chester, Coventry, these were great cycles of performance. So the whole Bible would be performed over the course of a day. Um, and some of the, the scenes that um, would be performed might be less serious and might have all kinds of uh, jokes and clowning surrounding them, uh, not necessarily within the play itself, but again, surrounding the place. So if we imagine these things uh, happening in the marketplace, then obviously there may be other opportunities for other kinds of entertainers to capitalise on this opportunity um, to kind of uh, perform or or sell their wares. And was this type of uh, drama would have been watched by all levels of society or was it the general public would have watched this type of thing? Yeah, yeah, early drama in England, sort of prior to the sort of the period that we associate with Shakespeare, um, we're talking about these uh, mystery plays, moralities, uh, civic entertainments, and and performances in and around the church or the parish. Um, so these would have been accessible to to pretty much the the entire community. Um, and it's only over the course of the period that we're looking at, the 16th century, that you get these dedicated spaces for the performance. First of all, inns or inn yards, and then later on, playhouses that start to kind of filter out. Out the general crowds and, and introduce kind of fee-paying public for the first time. And when and why did this type of religious drama die out and what was it replaced with? Good question. Um, when and why it died out is fairly easy to answer. It's because of the, uh, the religious changes of the Reformation, so uh, hostility towards any kind of deceptive art form, so a, a resistance to portraying religious characters, either in art or in drama, because this was considered to be irreligious and false and deceptive and non-scriptural, you know, moving beyond the focus on the word. So 
that's why uh, these kinds of the liturgical drama I've been speaking about, the mystery plays, the moralities were phased out um, over the course of the middle 16th century where all the religious changes are taking place. And then finally, after Elizabeth comes to the throne, it takes a couple of decades. But, but these religious plays seems to have been phased out by the 1570s, apart from in a few you know, isolated um, locations. You mentioned in the feature that another aspect of Elizabethan drama was a royal entry into a city, um, such as uh, Mary, Queen of Scots in Edinburgh. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, well, uh, this was a long-established tradition um, right the way through the Tudor period um, to have monarchs would go on progresses around the country, um, some more than others, uh, to be seen by their public. And obviously this was accompanied by a huge amount of spectacle and ceremony. And monarchs might visit a particular city and, and, and have uh, pageants or performance put on for them. And the first time a monarch would enter a, a city or a town was known as a royal entry. It was more triumphant. It was um, celebrated even more than just, just a visit. Um, and this was accompanied by, again, a lot of street theatre. Theatre performed in the streets of the, the city or town um, with various members of the community taking part. Um, so it was you know, very um, much... Uh, participated in by everyone, including the monarch, who was then expected to sort of perform their part that was sort of given to them effectively by the entertainment as it had been written or, or set up for their visit. Um, and this would, it would be kind of similar to the, the sort of mystery plays I've been speaking about in that you would have pageants at various points through the city or town. So the monarch would progress around um, a sort of predetermined course, stations, and stop off at stations along the way where they would have particular pageants performed to them and they might have to respond with some appropriate response um, that's presumably not scripted but they probably didn't have much option in, in how to respond. Yeah, I mean you mentioned in the feature that performances were usually put on by travelling troops of players. What would life have been like for an Elizabethan actor and how were they viewed by society? Well, that's a really difficult question to answer because we, we don't know very much about what life was like on the road, as it, as it were. But we, we can imagine, we can speculate that this was potentially very lucrative for them so that there's a, there's a huge kind of opportunity there to, to make money and get patronage as you go around and, and also spread the word for your um, core patron that's sponsoring you. But then obviously you're, you're able to um, be put up, you get bed and board. And presumably life was... I mean, it's a transient life. So what goes hand in hand with that kind of transient lifestyle tends to be, you know, a lot of drinking and womanizing. We can imagine that you don't put down roots anywhere. Then you've perhaps got a bit more freedom and a bit more license to, uh, to exploit local resources, shall we say. Yeah. And, and how would people have seen them? Were they feared or were they respected? I don't think they were feared. They were probably eagerly anticipated um, as one of the opportunities for, you know, entertainment. Um, and presumably some of these characters were built, had already built up quite a reputation. They were kind of the stars of the day. So the opportunity for, you know, the stars of the day to come to your particular town and, and be able to see them in, you know, live performance must have been incredibly exciting. Um, but at the same time, as I said, there was this kind of surrounding the religious change of the Reformation and sort of growing Puritan um, feeling in some parts of society. There was a sense that playing was um, disreputable, um, irreligious, that it promoted idleness and lechery, so that there would have been all these associations with these characters as well, these actors, that, you know, they were doing something at the margins of society, and presumably there were those within society that welcomed the kind of excitement that these characters brought to um, their town, and, and those that sort of frowned on it and thought, frowned upon it and thought that this was um, something that was bringing their particular town um, into disrepute. And they would have been the types of people who would have played at the, the permanent playhouses as well, as well, would they, when they emerged? Yes, yes. As we move into the period where the uh, sort of more durable purpose-built theatres um, in the 1570s and 80s, and, and particularly in the 90s, the kind of heyday of these theatres, uh, yeah, the, these um, touring um, groups are also performing in, in, the, in the playhouses in London. So when and where did these first permanent playhouses emerge, and why did this happen? Well, they emerged in London. And although there are a couple of references to uh, other um, playhouses being converted um, from inns in, in other areas, it's, it's mainly something that happens in the capital. It's, it's part of the new kind of entertainment industry 
in the capital. Um, so the first one appears, the first kind of experimental um, sort of purpose-built um, theatre seems to have been built in 1567, sort of a speculative venture, but it, it didn't last very long. It was called the Red Lion and had scaffold and it was it's sort of a form of an outdoor theatre, but it seems to have only lasted perhaps one season. So we, we, really we're looking at the 1570s for the, the period, the sort of where these open-air amphitheatres that we think of when we think of somewhere like the Globe or the, the Rose, um, when, when they really started. And did the emergence of these playhouses put an end to performances in other public spaces? Um, not to begin with, no. And, and again, we have to think of um, the fact that these things are only in London. So at the same time, as you said, that the, uh, uh, these playing companies are performing in the playhouses in London in the summer, they're also touring um, and, and, and at, at different points over the course of the 1590s and, and going to the localities, going to the provinces and, and using the same spaces that they would have used for, again, decades, the, the guild halls, the moot halls, the, the inn yards. Um, perhaps though, they're still using all, all the old spaces as well as having these new um, custom-built spaces in, in the capital. OK, and how does Shakespeare fit into the changes in Elizabethan drama? What would his experience have been? We don't know very much about Shakespeare's experience at all. So, again, it's all speculation. Um, it seems that he... Uh, it, it, it's extremely likely that he would have experienced the kind of um, travelling players' performances that I mentioned in Stratford-upon-Avon um, growing up um, because we know that lots of companies visited Stratford and probably performed in the Guildhall there. So Shakespeare, being the son of a local, an important local dignitary, his father was, was mayor for a while, um, would presumably have had access to and been entertained by these um, travelling players. Perhaps that's what captured his imagination. A, and he would have then, we don't know what he did during the so-called lost years, but he seems to have turned up in, in London, perhaps in the uh, late 1580s, where these new dedicated playhouses are really um, coming into their own um, and hooks up with the best companies of the day, um, eventually um, being a member of the Lord Chamberlain's men which became the King's Men after 1603. And he actually had a stake in the Globe, didn't he? He did, yeah. He was a key player in lots of ways. Uh, he was an actor, he was a playwright, but he also um, was a businessman. So, uh, And that seems to be the case that the, a lot of actors got involved with um, having a kind of stake in the, the company and, and the theatres that they were using. That was Tara Hamling on Elizabethan Drama. You can read our feature on the emergence of permanent playhouses and the spaces used for performance in our May issue. Now, I'm sure some of you will have seen the recent blockbuster film The Eagle, which is based on Rosemary Sutcliffe's classic novel about the mysterious disappearance of the Roman Ninth Legion in the 2nd century AD. The film suggests that the Legion was massacred in Scotland, but is the real story more complicated than that? And what was life actually like for the beleaguered Roman forces in the north of England? To find out the answers, I spoke to Miles Russell, a historian who specialises in Roman Britain. What was the role of the Roman army in Britain during the 1st and 2nd centuries AD? Well, the Roman army comes into Britain in AD 43 as part of the conquest of the island by the Emperor Claudius. And we know that certainly in southern and southeastern Britain, it's a relatively easy affair because these tribes have been trading with the Roman world for some significant time. Their leaders are well on the way to being Romanized. They're minting coins with uh, Latin titles and, and names on them. So in a way, the Roman army is liberating those tribes. There's one tribe in particular, the Trinovantes, who seem to be the aggressor. They've been destabilising the political area for some significant time. So the armies come in really as a way of enacting regime change on the Trinovantes and stabilising this kingdom on the northern frontier of the Roman world. Having done that, there is this issue of how much further do they take the conquest? Because when you look at Britain geographically and geologically, it's the gold... Um, the tin, the lead-rich areas of the south and west, those areas that have been well out of Roman control and Roman influence, which are probably the most prosperous. So whilst the south and east produce iron and there's quite a lot of agricultural resources, to make Britain 
a profitable part of the Roman world, the army's got to move out of its comfort zone, out of the southeast, and start taking territory in the west and the north. As they do that, they encounter tribes with no history of Roman contact, with no real desire to be Roman, mountainous terrain, quite uh, dispersed settlement areas, and the army very swiftly gets bogged down. And it takes a good 20 or 30 years to really subjugate Wales and the southwest. But they're always left with this problem of northern England, which seems to be, from their point of view, economically unprofitable but it ties up an awful lot of military resources. They need the northern part of Britain to be secure, certainly northern England to be secure, if they can protect the south and the east. So they find themselves in a situation perhaps where they've gone in thinking it's going to be a relatively easy affair, thinking they can enact a a bit of regime change and control the south and east, but find that Britain takes up a large amount of military resources. They never really satisfactorily resolve the British problem of what to do, how to win the hearts and minds of people in the west and the north of the island. The Roman army had been a very successful invading force throughout the Mediterranean region. Why did they have so much trouble in northern England and Scotland? Well, I think when the army comes through the Mediterranean, it's obviously meeting societies not unlike itself. So in North Africa with the Carthaginians, in Greece, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey... They're meeting Greek and and Punic society that have got an idea of statehood. They've got an idea of towns, urban organisation, kings. These are societies that meet the Romans in nice big battle formation, pitch battles, and whoever wins the battle decides the day. So it's a relatively... I say relatively easy, it's a difficult process, but Rome's very good at fighting these communities because Rome's the only state in the Mediterranean that's got a professional army. They've got people who serve for a minimum of 25 years in the military. These are people who spend all their days training and fighting and preparing for war, and against which the Greeks and the Carthaginians, they do have armies, but they're not so well-trained and well-equipped as the Roman ones. So Rome finds its comparatively easy to conquer these areas but having done that it's relatively easy to control them because they're organized in pretty much the same way that Rome herself is organized but when they come into Britain and northern Europe they're dealing with far less centralized societies they're dealing with far less organized societies that there are sort of hill forts and these big enclosures that archaeologists call oppida but they're not like towns society is very different to what they're used to in the Mediterranean world. So it involves a lot more military resources to pacify these areas, a lot more persuasion, shall we say, to make these areas Roman, to persuade the elite, the aristocrats in these zones, that being Roman is a good thing. They need to be Roman, then they need to persuade their people to come over as well. And some areas of Britain, that's quite easy because they're dealing with kings who perceive Rome to be a good thing. You've got access to wine and olives and, and all the good life that Rome brings. But areas outside the southeast far more difficult. And if you're dealing with groups who practice guerrilla warfare, who sort of hide in the mountains and attack you when you're on the march, who burn their crops so you have no access to them, attack you within your forts, Rome doesn't like that kind of warfare. It finds it very difficult to deal with. You get a lot of Roman historians describing the Britons as being quite cowardly because they refuse to come and fight in a big massed army. But obviously they're quite sensible in that because they know if they do that, they will be defeated. So if you carry on this guerrilla warfare, you can slowly wear Rome down and by this process of attrition, you can defeat them. And I think that's the strategy that a lot of tribes, certainly in northern Britain, adhere to. And so what kind of Roman troops were being sent to Britain? Was it their crack troops going over? Well, you get in the initial stages at least four legions, and the legions are the elite of the Roman military. These are the citizen-based troops. These are the ones who are well-trained, well-equipped, serving for a minimum of 25 years. So you've got somewhere about 5,500, just under 5,500 men in a legion. So there's about 30,000 legionaries coming over to Britain. And when you consider that there's only about 30 legions across the empire as a whole. Four are coming into Britain. That's quite a significant slice of the Roman military. And they're probably bringing with them somewhere between 30 and 40,000 auxiliaries. And these are the second-rate troops. These are the ones who are recruited from barbarian areas, barbarian zones and tribes. These are the sort of people who... Rome increasingly treats more like cannon fodder. You get them to do the policing, you throw them into the battle zones. It doesn't matter how many of them die because they're not Roman. They don't count. But when you put that all together, you've got somewhere around about 90,000 troops are coming into the British Isles. That's a significant number 
And obviously Claudius, for him, it's his big prestigious event. It's the one military engagement that he's involved in and he wants to make it work. And he's aware that the tribes of the south and east will go over to Rome swiftly, but he wants enough troops, well, we're told, to conquer the rest of the island. But we don't know how much of the island... We don't really know whether Rome at that time was aware of just how big the British Isles were and how many islands there are around Scotland and whether or not they had even considered taking Ireland. But obviously he was taking no risks and through a huge mass of Roman resources at the island to try and make it work as a viable economic proposition. Now, coming on to the Ninth Legion, do we know when the Ninth Legion arrived in Britain? Well, we don't know for sure. It's always assumed that they were part of the invasion in AD 43. To be honest, only one legion is cited specifically at the time of the invasion. That's the Second Legion. And that's only because their general, their commander, a chap called Vespasian, later went on to be emperor. So his curriculum vitae, his career is recorded quite nicely. I think it's fair to assume the Ninth was probably involved in those initial stages. But we don't really hear of them, first of all, until about the late 50s AD, when they seem to be somewhere up near Peterborough. They've got a base and they appear to be holding the northern frontier because Rome at that stage has got a treaty with a tribe called the Brigantes. And the Brigantes seem to be one of the largest tribes of Britain. That They hold an area really from Cambridgeshire right the way through Yorkshire, up to Cumbria, up to really now where Hadrian's Wall stands. It's a vast area. They're quite keen to get this tribe on their side. If that tribe is pro-Roman, if it's peaceful, it means that Rome doesn't have to commit to fighting a war on two fronts because it's already got large masses of its troops in Wales. It's very bogged down in the south of Wales. It's trying to pacify Devon and Cornwall. It doesn't need a war starting on a second or a third front. So the ninth position seems to be to hold that frontier and to make it stable. And we hear from the Roman historian Tacitus that the Brigantes themselves, probably because it's such a large area that the leaders are trying to hold on to, their queen, an individual called Cartimandua, is trying to keep potential insurgents or rebels in her territory down. And she's had a falling out with her husband, her ex-husband by then, an individual called Venutius, who seems to be very anti-Roman. So there is a pro- and anti-Roman faction fighting for political dominance in this area. And the Ninth, on a number of occasions, has to go into the Brigantes' territory to try and support the Queen, put down the insurgency and to keep that frontier stable. Were they involved in a lot of military action? We're told they are involved in some action at this stage. Their biggest blooding, from their point of view, occurs in a surprising area because in AD 60 there is a revolt to the south in a territory that's supposed to be quiet, an area that's supposed to be pacified. The tribe, the Acani tribe of Norfolk, under their queen, Boudicca, has been antagonised by the Romans. It hasn't been treated particularly well. It, It went over to the Romans very early on. But at this stage, the Emperor Nero is in power, Claudius having long since died. And Nero and his officers seem keen to exploit the Acanian and to get out as much as they can of them. And the Brigantes rebel. And we hear that the Ninth marching south from Peterborough, possibly to relieve the town of Colchester, which is being besieged by the rebels, or possibly to going down to protect London, which is rapidly becoming the economic heart of the province, get intercepted halfway down and get ambushed. And this is exactly the kind of situation the Roman military does not like, ambush or surprise attack. And we're told Tacitus says that they are cut to pieces and every single infantryman in the legion is killed. Now, we don't know if it's the whole legion, the whole five and a half thousand, or just half the legion that is annihilated. But he seems quite definite that all the infantry marching southwards are ambushed and executed. And only the officers manage to escape on horseback. They get back to their fort, they barricade the doors, and they prepare to defend themselves. So one of the earliest bits of evidence for the Ninth in Britain, it is suffering a severe reverse. It is massively blooded in this first campaign. When did the Ninth Legion disappear from the historical record? We've got our last recorded identification of the Ninth in Britain, in fact anywhere in the Roman world, comes from York. There's a big monumental inscription commemorating the rebuilding of York in stone, which we can date precisely to 108 AD because it cites the Emperor Trajan and it gives a list of titles which for him lasted between December 107 and December 108 AD. So that's a nice definite bit of dating evidence to 108. By 160 AD, the legion has disappeared. It's not on any official record. We know by at least 122 AD that its place at York has been taken by another legion, the 6th. 
So the question is really, did the ninth disappear in Britain? Did the sixth come in to replace the ninth, it having been removed elsewhere? But we've got no definite evidence of where it actually vanished. But of course, that is the basis of the myth, the basis of the story, that they were annihilated within the British Isles. So there's one theory that they were annihilated in Britain. Are there any other theories that have widespread acceptance? The standard view that's really taken hold since the 1960s is that they were transferred elsewhere. The big story of the Knights really began under Rosemary Sutcliffe, who obviously wrote The Eagle of the Knights, a fantastic story in the 1950s, which describes the Legion being destroyed in Britain, um, their battle standard being taken, and this young Roman officer travelling north out of the province to recover this eagle and to find out what happened to his father, who had been in the Legion. And that was based on the fact that a bronze eagle was found at Silchester, near Reading, in the 19th century. And in Rosemary Sutcliffe's story, that becomes the Eagle of the Night, that becomes their standard. And she explains how it got there, because this son travelled to the north, he recovered the eagle, he brought it back, and it was eventually laid to rest in Silchester. And since people have looked at the eagle and analysed it, we've really come to this feeling that it's probably not a legionary eagle. It might have been part of a Jupiter statue. Jupiter's always associated with eagles in the Roman world that stood in Silchester in the town itself and has been cut up at a later date to be melted down. And I think as people realise that, the whole story of the ninth being lost tend to fade away as well. So the eagle wasn't legionary, therefore the ninth didn't disappear in Britain. But in defence of that argument, the suggestion that it went somewhere else is rather vague. We get a few tiles from a place called Nijmegen in the Netherlands, which are stamped with a distinctive mark of the ninth, but they're undateable. And we know that part of that legion was on the Rhine in the mid-80s AD, fighting a German tribe called the Chattii. So it's quite possible that those tiles date from that point. But beyond that, our last positive identification is in Britain. Now, we know that just before 122 AD, when the 6th Legion comes into Britain, that there is a massive uprising in the province. We're told that the Romans cannot keep the Britons under control. We're later told that large numbers of Romans die in the province, and that has to really be legionaries dying for it to appear on the imperial radar. They wouldn't have discussed perhaps civilians or auxiliaries. So there's two bits of evidence there that suggest there is a big problem in the north of the country. And of course, the 9th Legion is the most northerly of all legions in Britain. It's based at York. It's right on the frontier line, if you will. If there is a revolt combined with an invasion, which seems likely, perhaps it's the Brigantes uprising, perhaps it's tribes of what is now southern Scotland coming into the Roman province. But the situation is serious enough for at least 3,000 reinforcements to be sent hurriedly to Britain. The emperor then arrives with another legion to replace the 9th. And I think all that combined suggests that they almost certainly did die in Britain. Now, at the moment, of course, we've got no mass graves. The trouble with battlefields are once the dying has ended, bodies get removed, they get buried in mass pits or in cemeteries. Bits of armour, bits of kit get cleared up. Often after a battle has taken place, there's no archaeological evidence on the ground. So at the moment, we've got an absence of evidence that they were taken somewhere else. We've got an absence of evidence that archaeologically that they died in Britain. But I think all the historical information suggests that they were at the centre of this mass insurrection and they probably died fighting trying to put that down. And if there were any survivors left over, there are one or two tombstones relating to people who served in the ninth, found elsewhere in the empire sort of later on in their careers. I think the likelihood is that some people survived, but not enough for the Legion to be reformed. And having suffered so badly at the hands of this insurgency, that it was just easier to replace them completely, bring another legion in, replace them in York, and then Hadrian himself sets about creating a wall at the northern frontier of Britain to keep the tribes to the south, to make it clear to them, you're in Roman territory, there's nothing you can do about it. It's like the Berlin Wall, keeping people in, but also ensuring that aggressive non-Roman influences are kept out. There's no chance that the tribes to the south will ever receive help from their northern allies. And that's a way of really drawing a, a line underneath the loss of the ninth and saying, we've now made the province secure and stable. We can now go about the policy of Romanising it and making it work. The film The Eagles recently been released, which covers this same story. How accurate a picture of the Ninth Legion and life for the Roman army in Britain in general do you think that film's given? I think The Eagles, certainly from the point of view of archaeological information, it's amazing. Very few films really get, I mean, I don't think any film was ever going to get all the detail right, and there'll always be purists who'd say the belt buckle isn't worn like that, or that bit of armour's slightly wrong. But I think the basic 
fighting tactics that the early part of the film involves Romans fighting a defensive war and they've got their shields locked together and the way they're fighting, the way they're acting, the kind of industrial carnage that a legion or, or legionaries can inflict upon barbarians is shown extremely well in that film. As to the actual loss of the ninth, the film follows Rosemary Sutcliffe quite closely, and there's obviously an earlier film, Centurion, from last year, which has the same basic story, that they are cut to pieces marching for some unknown purpose into northern Britain. And I think given the ninth's experience during the Boudican War when it's ambushed, given the Roman army's experience, there's been a number of occasions, certainly in Germany in AD 9, three legions are taken apart by a, a massive ambush, they wouldn't be marching into unknown territory without any kind of support in a nice long column, basically saying, look at us, come and attack us. I think it's far more likely that they are taken to pieces in and around the area of York, in a zone that they would have felt they had some degree of control over. So as far as that's concerned, obviously, archaeologists and historians will be debating, probably for many years to come, the reality of that. But as far as life in the Roman legions, as far as the Roman military goes, I think the film gets it pretty much spot on. And of course, they have the added advantage of giving all the Romans American accents. And straight away, that creates a distance between the audience and what's going on on the screen. But it also creates a link because you see these Romans almost as GIs. They're serving in mountainous terrain with hostile natives who behead their prisoners. And it gives you that sort of feeling that perhaps this is exactly what's going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. But you get a sense of troops out of their depth, a long way from home, well-trained, well-disciplined, but completely out of their comfort zone. And if they'd been given English accents or English-accented Romans in Britain doesn't really make that connection. It's, sometimes it's quite difficult trying to explain to a modern audience the realities or the, the nature of Roman conquest, how they keep a province together and the difficulties they faced. Giving them American accents, suddenly the audience gets that link. Uh, you no longer have to try and make a great explanations as to how the Romans are trying to cope or their lack of coping. You get it straight away. Do you think that the Roman army situation in Britain was quite similar to what American troops are facing nowadays? Obviously, you can make some broad brush comparisons. There's lots of differences socially, politically and from a religious perspective. But if you're dealing with an army which is extremely well trained, professionally trained, well equipped, well disciplined, who are used to dealing with communities with large centres of occupation, they can lay siege to, they can attack and so on. They can build roads, they can create all the infrastructure of state is fine. But suddenly, when they're in a mountainous terrain, they can't pin down the enemy. They no longer know all the people around them, who's friends, who's an enemy. They don't know if an arrow or some kind of projectile is going to start firing at them at any particular stage. They're nervous, they're jittery, they are, to some extent, large periods of boredom, because they're not fighting or building, they're just in their fort. And really, there's a lack of instruction coming from command, other than just hold the area because you hold the area, the zone to the south, the civilian zone of Roman Britain, is protected. So there's a lot of boredom, there's a lot of agitation, followed by extreme conflict and violence, but they're just not trained to deal with this. So I think in that sense, the analogy works at quite a broad level, but it certainly works when you're dealing with people who just don't know who the enemy is. That was Miles Russell of Bournemouth University. You can read more about his theories on the Ninth Legion in our May issue. Miles is also the author of Unroman Britain, which is published by the History Press. BBC History magazine is published every four weeks in the UK and costs £3.95. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket or take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are in the magazine and on our website at historyextra.com. The magazine is also published digitally, so please go to historyextra.com forward slash digital for more information on that. That's it for this episode. Next month, we'll discover the truth behind the career of Captain Kidd and we'll find out why the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union had grave implications for Britain. <laughs> <laughs>